Well, it's great to serve a God who will not let us go. Because he will not let us go, our souls can be still and our souls can find our rest in him. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I just think of the words that we sang earlier when we sang my all in all. Taking my cross, my sin, and my shame, rising again, I'll bless your name. Father, I thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to pay that price on behalf of all those who would trust him, that he would take our sin, that he would take our shame, and that we could be raised with him. For all of that, we truly do bless your name, and we sing, Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who is given as a sacrifice for sins once and for all, and it is him we praise. It's him that we adore and him that we exalt today. Father, I pray that those, that those elevated thoughts of Christ that we have had this morning would remain front and center in our minds even as we turn now to your word. Help us, we pray. Shine light onto your word. Give us eyes to see. Give us minds to comprehend and to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles once again and go to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and over to chapter 28. Over to chapter 28, again, if you're using those Bibles that are in front of you, it's this page 68 in your Bible. When I say chapter 28, if you're new to the Bible, those numbers are the bold numbers in your Bible, and then there's little numbers by the verses, so that's kind of how you follow along. And we're in Exodus chapter 28. This is God talking to Moses while he is up on the mountain. And I just want to read a few verses for you in chapter 28, right at the beginning, in verses 1 to 5. One thing I neglected to do when I had scripture reading before is ask you to stand as we read. So I'm going to ask you to do that now as I read those verses in honor of God's word. Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. This is the Lord talking. He says, then bring near to you, talking to Moses, he says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." Thank you. You may be seated. And just keep your Bibles open there. So the rest of this chapter is all about clothing design. Last week we talked about building design. This week it's clothing design. And you might ask, as I wanted you to ask last week, what gives? Why is this in the Bible? You may have never known that God is both a building designer and a fashion 
designer, a clothing designer. He is in the building design business, and he is in the clothing design business. Well, I have to admit that God is not actually in the business. He structured and he, he designed really a tent of sorts. Is this, this structure is the building in which he would be symbolically, but also very visibly to them, very obviously and gloriously present in this tabernacle, this place where he would meet with his people. His people, let's remind you, are the people of Israel. They're all gathered together here around Mount Sinai in this camp, about two million strong. They're out in the wilderness. They're between Egypt and the Promised Land, in many ways like we are. Between that place of bondage to sin, for them it was bondage to Egypt, and that place, that land that God has prepared for them, which was the land of milk and honey, land that was flowing with milk and honey. For us, the land, of course, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so last week we looked at God's design at the, for the tabernacle. It was a very exact design, and God demanded that it be built precisely according to his instructions, even to where the furniture would be placed. That's how far it went. He, he, he instructed them exactly where this went and where that went and, and how, which way it was to be, fa- to be facing and, and all kinds of precise instructions like that. And he demanded precision because he is God and because he is holy and because the people were the very opposite. The people were not holy. And when he is who is holy provides a way to meet with that, that which is common, when he who is holy provides a way to meet with that which is common, there is an inherent danger that the holy will swallow up the common. And so that tent of meeting needed to be made exactly according to God's design. Look back at chapter 25 and verse Nine. It starts off with that word, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Exactly. And so God gives the plan for that tabernacle there in chapters 25 to almost the end of chapter 27. But all of those requirements and that exactness and the fact that it demands such precision even perfection, brings up another question. Namely, who is it that's allowed to go in there? Is there a kind of person who can meet with God? How can humans gain access into the presence of God? Well, that's what chapter 28 to 31 are all about, especially chapter 28, which is mostly where we're going to be today. When I thought about that idea of gaining access to God, my mind kind of went to the kind of access that the public has to the leaders of our day. In the places, especially where they reside. People like a president or our prime minister. I found some interesting stuff on gaining access to the White House, for instance. The White House, out of all places where leaders of countries live is probably the most accessible to the public. 
When it was built, it was actually intended to be a place where people could have unlimited access. I realize that we are Canadian and we pretend not to want to know too much about American history or about America in general, am I right? But we still like to know what's going on down there and we're somehow overly interested in what's going on down there. So bear with me for just a minute, as I, if, you, if you're not into that, as we go a little, through a little bit of American history, especially on the White House. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, of course, didn't live in the White House. John Adams was the next president. He's the one that moved in there. But Thomas Jefferson, the third president, saw the White House as the people's house. That's what he called it. And, and he wanted it opened up to the public. Now, he did have a stone wall built around the White House, but that had nothing to do with keeping people out. It was actually just to keep the livestock that were wandering around the grounds there in. And so for decades, people were allowed to stroll the White House grounds during, it says, during the day and enter the mansion. One article said that Jefferson and subsequent presidents, along with their wives, would greet visitors in the East Room around lunchtime. People were not allowed in during the morning, so access was a little bit limited. They weren't allowed in during the morning when the president was sleeping or while he was out of town. However, they were allowed to have essentially unfettered access to the White House grounds, this article said. Well, eventually and understandably, the White House became less and less accessible after the Civil War, after the two world wars, especially after 9-11. Today, you can still get into the White House, though, but it does require that you plan months in advance, that you have an appointment, and that you have to go through a number of security checks. But that didn't keep everyone out. There have been a few security breaches that, that some of them may have had some violent intentions, but, the, but most of the attempts have either been pranks or have been done by harmless people, many of which had mental illnesses. The best one I read was where one person pretended to be part of a 33-member Marine band and actually got into the president's residence for 14 minutes before the security or the Secret Service moved him out. And this was just a a number of years ago. Another good one was where an uninvited couple got past security to attend a state dinner where President Obama was hosting the president of India. And he even has a picture of him greeting this couple. So this one couple was dressed in their nines like the rest of the guests. This other guy was dressed like the people in the Marine Band and and was able to get in, at least for a time. Anyways, access to the house that belongs to the President of the United States has become quite limited and highly monitored. Well, what about our Prime Minister's residence at 24 Sussex Drive? found a very interesting article that went through the history of that house. But the article ended with these eight words. The residence is not open to the public. Very precise. Not much wiggle room there. Well, that's a good way to describe the tabernacle. It was not accessible to the public. Except that it wasn't inaccessible for security reasons or it wasn't inaccessible for the safety of God. It was not open to the public for the safety of the public. 
It was dangerous for the unholy to come into contact with the holy. But in his great love for his people, God is right here providing a way and a means to meet with him. It involved the structure, but it also involved people, and it especially involved the clothing that these people wore. Those people are called priests, and the one priest that was allowed even closer access, though only once a year, very limited access, is called the high priest. So that's the answer to the who gets to go in question. We get introduced to these priests in the very last verse of Exodus 27. Exodus 27, verse 21, it's talking there about how the lampstand stays lit. It says, in the tent of meeting, outside the veil, that's before the testimony, which was the ark, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. And then chapter 28, verse 1, which we read, talking to Moses, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel. So these were part of the people of Israel, the representatives of the people in a sense, to serve me as priests. To serve me as priests. So God appoints these priests, Moses' brother Aaron and his sons. And this would be the line of the priesthood. Now after an introduction like that, I would expect God to then give a job description. What do these priests do? What was their role? How would they function? But God doesn't do that, at least yet. Instead, he instructs Moses on what they were supposed to wear. What they were supposed to wear. Don't you find that odd? God becomes the fashion designer. Verse 2, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. Holy garments. Then he tells Moses to round up some some of the skillful people there in the camp to make those clothes. And at the end of verse 4, they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. And from verse 5 right to verse 42 to the end of that chapter, he tells them exactly and precisely how to make these clothes for the priests and most especially for the high priest. So, what can we learn from all this clothing design? Let's call it priestwear clothing design. Is there anything we can learn from this? Or are these just unimportant details that were only relevant to those people at that time? Well, I'm praying that God would help you to see that this section in Exodus is important for me, it's important for you to understand. It's important because it will help you understand how actually you can stand before God in his presence. And it's the clothes that help us understand what we need. We often have a saying that goes, it's, it's what's on the inside that counts. And that's ultimately true. But in some way, when it comes to accessing God, the outside is important too. The outside is important. And that's because these clothes become a bit of a symbol and a picture of the fact that we need something outside of us in order to gain access to God. What's on the inside does not make the cut. In fact, what's on the inside actually denies us access into God's presence even more. That's why God must 
provide something on top of that. And that's exactly what he does. The outside does count for something. One thing you may have noticed in those first five verses of chapter 28 is that these clothes for the priest were called not just the garments, but the holy garments. And the idea behind God's design for the priest's clothes, when they go into God's presence, uh, go into God's presence is that the priest needs to look holy. At least that much. The priest needs to look holy. It's interesting that the material that's used to make the priest's clothes here is basically the same material that was used to make the temple curtains and the veils and the entrances. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and twined linens. Some places say twisted linens. You'll see those same colors, those same materials back in chapter 26. If you want to look it up in in chapter 1, or in verse 1, or in verse 31, or in verse 36, it was obvious that the priest belonged to the tabernacle. He matched. And it's interesting that he especially matched the entrances. Whenever he wore those holy garments, he would go through the curtain, he would go through the screen, that one entrance, and that entrance matched what he was wearing. And more importantly... The fact that they matched pointed to the fact that he was going into God's presence. Verse 2 simply says, You shall make holy garments for glory and for beauty. The garments matched not only the tabernacle, but the God who intended it to be the tent of meeting, that place where God dwells with his people. The God who embodies all three of those qualities there. Holy, glory, and beauty. Psalm 29, verse 2, uses all three of those words as it calls us to worship God. It says this, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The clothes on the priest, the holy garments that were for glory and beauty, clearly indicated that he was going to walk through the curtains that matched his clothes where he would meet with the Lord who himself is holy and glory and beauty. So in these clothes of the priest, we see reflections of both the people and of God. The priest was just a person. He was one of the people in the camp, but he also wore clothes that then connected him with God and allowed him access to God. He represented the people, and he reflected also God's holiness at the same time when he was dressed in the holy garments. And as God describes all the articles of clothing that the priest is going to wear, the picture starts to get a little bit clearer and more clear on exactly how Those two realities, his being one of the people and his clothes making him distinct from the people, it begins to get clear how his clothes are of benefit to us when it comes to our relationship with God. And what really starts to come into focus is that a priest in the line of Aaron is ultimately not sufficient to bring us to God. The priest that we really need is Jesus Christ. And if you really want to dive into what all these clothes mean, I would recommend a little book that, that Stuart Peterson lent me this week. It's called God in Our Midst, written 
um, by a man by the name of Daniel Hyde. The subtitle is The Tabernacle and Our Relationship with God. Excellent book, covering the whole book, just covering Exodus 25 to 31. I mention it because I'm going to borrow two of Hyde's headings for this section describing the benefits of the priest's clothes. The first benefit is, is that his clothes assure us that our names are remembered. Our names are remembered. You see, as as God describes what's called the ephod there in verses 6 to 14 and the breastpiece, which is in verses 15 to 30. These were basically what went on the shoulders of the priest and what went along, uh, let's call it the front torso of the priest. But what's notable is that they both had stones or jewels which contained on them or which had engraved on them the, 12, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Tribes to which every person in that camp, every single person in that camp, I guess they had a few stragglers along too, a few Egyptians that were along there in the camp as well, but most of the people, at least the Israel, Israelite people in that camp, they belonged to one of those 12 tribes. Every person belonged to one of those 12 tribes. And that meant that when the priest came into the tabernacle, he was, in essence, carrying the name of every person in that camp in there with him. That was the significance of that. Look at chapter uh, 28 and verse, verse 12. It says, And you shall set up the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. He shall bear their names before the Lord for remembrance. So on his shoulders, he was carrying their names into the tabernacle. And when the high priest went in there through the curtain, the people would be reassured that they were being represented and remembered in there. He would know the people personally by name. And we can be assured that God knows your name too. If you trust Jesus Christ, here's what he says in John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Later in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Back in Exodus 28, verse 29 adds this. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place. Why? To bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. That's Exodus 28, verse 29. When we trust in the great high priest, that is Jesus, we can know for sure that he remembers us regularly before the Lord. Remember what I read in Hebrews 7, 25? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. He is regularly representing them before the Lord. He's regularly representing us before the Lord, regularly making intercession for us. This is good news for us, is it not? Jesus goes to the Father with our names written on his heart and in his blood, and he regularly brings our needs before God the Father. He bears our names for remembrance. 
The second benefit of the priest's clothes that we notice is that our sins are removed. This is the best benefit ever, is it not? So not only did Aaron bear the names of the sons of Israel on his clothes when he went in behind the curtain into the presence of the Lord, the end of verse 30 says, thus Aaron will bear the judgment of the people of Israel regularly. Not only would he bear our name, he would bear the judgment of the people of Israel regularly. And verse 38 goes on to say that he shall bear any guilt. He shall bear judgment and he shall bear guilt. And so he straps on, as he straps on his priestly gear, as he straps on his garb, much as if you have kids that play hockey, much as they strap on their equipment, as this priest straps on his garb, he bears the judgment and the guilt of his people, of the people that are there in the camp. The picture that these clothes draw for us is that the people's judgment and guilt for sins that they commit is removed from them and placed onto Aaron. Is that picture starting to form in your minds a little bit? Starting to make you think of other things and other people? Another person later on. This is a foretaste of what Jesus Christ does for sinners. The problem with Aaron and his sons and all the priests to follow is that they were sinners too. They may have had all these beautiful clothes on, but those holy garments only covered up what was on the inside. He couldn't hide the sin that was in his heart. That's why there was always the threat of death. One commentator says that high priest was the most dangerous job in Israel. His life was in jeopardy every time he served in the tabernacle. And that's why part of what he wore on his garments were bells on the bottom of his robe. The end of verse 35 says, It's sound, the sound of these bells shall be heard when he goes into the holy presence before the Lord and when he comes out. Why? So that he does not die. God even told him, in fact, that his underwear needed to be exactly right or he could die. If you don't believe me, look at verse 42. It's talking there about his undergarments. And verse 43, now I notice everyone's turning to this, right? <laughs> i got to see this. Verse 42, the undergarments, verse 43, they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, lest they bear guilt and die. Serious stuff. If you peek over to chapter 30, you'll have that same thing when he talked about how they needed to wash up before they went in there. Chapter 30, verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water. And later it says, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It was serious business whenever they went in there. And it was dangerous. They'd better get it right, even down to their underwear. They'd better dress right, and they'd better do exactly as God designed. In other words, they had better be holy and clean, as clean as a sinful priest could get. The only way he could go in and come out alive is when he dressed exactly as God said. The only way he could go in and come out alive is when he dressed exactly as God said. When it came down to it, God could give the priest clothes, but that didn't deal with his sin. And because he was a sinner, he could not bear the sins of the people once and for all. For them, it was just rinse and repeat. 
The good news, friends, is that God went beyond designing holy garments for an imperfect priest. That was just a foretaste of what was coming. He instead provided a holy priest, perfectly holy in every way, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's interesting. In John 19, when Jesus is on the cross where he would atone for the sins of the people, it talks there about what he was wearing on his head and on his body. John 19, verse 2 says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe. Isn't that interesting? These Roman soldiers, likely not knowing any of these connections, rather than a turban made out of, among other things, twisted linen, dressed him, twisted together for Jesus a crown of thorns. But they also dressed him in purple. Royal clothes, priestly clothes. That's verse 2. Go over to verse 23 if you went over to John 19. It says that the soldiers divided up his garments. And then John includes this sentence, just sort of as a commentary. It says the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Why would he include that? little detail. Well, here's why. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, looked like a priest. A pathetic version of a priest, but a priest nonetheless. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was doing the work of a priest, not in the tabernacle, but up on a wooden cross. Only Jesus, as our great high priest, Unlike the other priests, only Jesus was stripped down. You want to know why? He didn't need all those clothes to be holy before the Lord. He was already holy from the inside out. He obeyed God perfectly through his earthly life. Go back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Those verses are going to tell you how Jesus was clothed in holiness. Rather than wearing a breastpiece, an ephod, and a robe, and a coat, and a turban, and a sash, it gives another list there in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. He says, for it was indeed fitting, that's an interesting word, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Here's the list of the things that Jesus wore. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's what qualified Jesus to bear our sin to carry our name there, to bear our judgment, to bear our guilt. That's how he was clothed, not with holy garments, but with a perfect holiness, not on the outside, but on the inside. And because he did that, he could carry all of our sins, not just into that tabernacle, but onto a cross where he would bear our judgment and our guilt and where he would, in fact, die so that we would live forever. Praise God. Hebrews 7, verse 27, the very next verse, he has no need, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. He was utterly unlike those priests in that he had no sin. Brothers and sisters, behold our God. 
Behold the Lamb of God up on, up on a cross. Behold his beauty. Behold his holiness. Behold his glory. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Here are his garments. He put on, those are putting on closed words, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and he put a helmet of salvation on his head. And if that's not good enough, here's the kicker. God now clothes us with the righteousness of God and with salvation. Because Jesus is that high priest who bears our sins once for all, God actually goes one step further and clothes us with righteousness and salvation. Listen to the prophecy of Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. This is just praise and worship here. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me. He's covered our nakedness, our filth, with the robe of righteousness. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? We have such a high priest. He's already done the work on our behalf, completely holy, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we should have died, paying the penalty that our sins deserved. And if we've already put our faith in him, all that we can do now is to rejoice in the Lord and to exalt in our God and to enter into his presence now in continual confession, at the same time knowing that our sins are already forgiven, past, present, future sins. Probably the verse that, that most amazes me, the one that stops me in my tracks every time I read it, second, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... For our sake, he, that's God, made him to be sin. Just think of that. For our sake, God made him, talking about Christ, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might now become the righteousness of God. God put our dirty, stained clothes we could say God took our dirty stained clothes and put them on Jesus so that we get to wear his holy and sinless clothes. And that's how we can now get to enter into God's presence. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian or maybe you're not sure whether you are, friend, let me present to you Jesus Christ. Look to him. He is your only hope. If you thought there was any other way to please God, I encourage you to lay all that aside and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a guy in the Bible who put his hope into other things, a guy by the name of Paul. He, he, he thought he was doing pretty good. And by all human counts, he was. But he came to realize that all of those achievements actually got him nowhere. He laid all of those clothes aside and he put on Christ. He knew he needed to, this is Philippians 3 verse 9, he knew he needed to be found in him. He needed to be found not in his good deeds, he needed to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of his own, 
Remember how I said the righteous, the, these clothes need to come from the outside? Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from, for him it was law-keeping, that was his thing. In fact, the Isaiah 64 verse 6 actually compares our so-called righteous deeds with polluted garments, the opposite of holy garments. Well, Paul came to see them as exactly that and said his only hope was to be found in Christ and in his perfection. And that righteousness is accessed, Paul says, through faith in Christ. It's the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Bottom line, confess that you are a sinner and put your faith only in what Jesus did as your high priest as he died on the cross. If you do that, the Bible promises that you will be clothed with the robes of Christ's righteousness and you'll be able to you'll be able to enter God's presence forever and live, not die. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Those three words are so precious. The righteousness of Christ. The act of obedience of Christ. He came to this earth for 33 years and obeyed your will perfectly. We thank you that by faith in Christ and through his, through his atoning work on the cross, through his accomplishments on the cross, we are no longer clothed with iniquity and sin, but we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Father, we thank you that we now have access to you, unhindered access, unqualified access, no security measures, not even any appointments needed, we can come to you through Christ. And we have the assurance that you will take us then from Egypt into the promised land. Until then, we pray that you would help us on this pilgrim journey, a journey filled with landmines, a journey filled with hardship, a journey filled with suffering, no doubt. Father, we want to draw near to you and, and ask that you would guide us and that you would lead us. And Father, that we would be eager to follow you, whatever the cost. And we do that, our Father, modeling again Jesus. We do that for the joy set before us. Eternal joy in your holy presence. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to, before you're dismissed, ask if there's anybody that can help a little bit. We have a senior adults banquet here on Tuesday. We need all the chairs just piled into piles of seven, I think is what we usually do, or six. And if you could help with that, that would be fantastic. And I just want to dismiss you with this benediction, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Have a great Lord's Day.